Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we are continuing our conversation on the Enneagram. Today, specifically, we want to talk about the childhood wounds of the Enneagram, and we want to do so in conversation with attachment theory. And joining me to discuss this, we have Dr. Josh Carroll, who is Life Group's pastor at Fellowship Dallas. How's it going, Josh? Hey, John. Good to be here. And we have Grace Ng, who is a PhD student in education at Biola University. How's it going, Grace? It's going well. And we also have a special guest. We have Dr. Eurice Lee Sayo, who is a clinical psychologist at the VA in Southern Oregon. How's it going, Eurice? Pretty good, John. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So since we're in a series about the Enneagram, would you tell us what your Enneagram type is and maybe how you first heard about it? Yeah, sure. I am a type two, which I believe is called the helper. And I have balanced wings. So I think that that means that I don't lean towards one or three. I'm just balanced of both, I believe. Um, So it hasn't been that long since I learned about, or I've heard about Enneagrams for um, some time, but I hadn't actually taken the test or really learned more about it until several months ago. Um, my sister-in-law actually got really into it and asked me what my type was, um, which uh, resulted in me taking the test and then urgently telling my husband to take the test too. So I, I could understand him better as well. And I, I, the test seems really interesting. Generally, we, we don't use these kinds of tests, but I think that this test is very interesting and gives a lot of like very insightful things about um, personality types and um, just other like how interpersonal um, relationships very interesting very thought-provoking I think. So tell us a little bit about your practice and and the kind of work that you do as a as a clinical psychologist. So right now I'm employed at the Southern Oregon Veterans um, Affairs. I work with veterans primarily in primary care mental health. So we work on a lot of like health behaviors or mild to moderate um, mental health symptoms. Um, I've been working here about two years and some change. Um, Prior to that, I was a Rosemead student um, so at Biola University and have some background providing therapy at the Biola Counseling Center and some other practicum sites around the OC and LA area. Yeah, I, as a, I, I have a PsyD degree instead of a PhD, so I'm much more on the clinical side of things and um, therapy's my passion, definitely more than research. Um, but I love uh, working with people face-to-face directly, um, sitting with them and whatever they're going through. Um, I think it's a really like a privilege to be in this kind of role for sure. How does attachment theory play itself out in the kind of work that you do? Is it a theory that you draw upon a lot and utilize in your therapy? So as far as how attachment theory influences my clinical practice, I'd say I actually in practice am more of a behaviorist. So I work much more on like behavior modification, behavior management, different things like that. However, in like my conceptualization of uh, patients, I'd say that attachment is one of my favorite, especially like 
with their their buy-in to our work together or like how engaged they seem to be. A lot of times they do bring up like either their military experience or their childhood experiences that have influenced like what makes it so hard to um, progress forward and things like that. So I think that definitely you can't you can't escape um, how attachment influences behavior. And so I wouldn't say I bring like overtly attachment based interventions into the room. I think like um, it definitely influences the the way that I go about choosing interventions, if that makes sense. Yeah. Would you give our listeners kind of a brief summary of what attachment theory is? Attachment theory is based on kind of like how during very critical periods in our early development attached to our primary caregivers, how they respond to us and how we learn um, to get our needs met through our primary caregivers through these like critical periods of when we're, when we're growing in our attachment with our caregivers, we developed something called the internal working model, which is what um, Bowlby, um, one of the original um, attachment theory people came up with. And it's basically like uh, kind of this internal structure of how you uh, learn to relate to your primary caregiver um, how you read their emotions, how you learn kind of who you are in relationship with your caregiver. And then the idea is that that representation, that internal representation continues on into like as you grow up into like uh, romantic relationships, into friendships, in uh, various different relationships, even as you grow older, it kind of is influenced by that original model from your primary caregivers. Based on Ainsworth, who is another uh, attachment theorist, she categorized the attachment into four different types. Um, They're called various different things. So I'll try to cover as many as I can remember of like the different ways that they call them. But um, the first is a secure attachment. And so basically like in in her experiment, if um, the mother were to be playing with the child, the child would um, be happily playing with the mother and then be checking it. She would be free here. She would feel free to explore the room, but would look back at the mother to like uh, periodically check in to make sure mom's still connected with me. I'm still connected. And then when the mom would leave the room and they're left with a stranger, there would be some distress. And then when the caregiver comes back, there's like a lot of relief and they're able to like connect again and then um, play again. So that's kind of like what that secure attachment would look like. And then usually they'd say that the mothers of those securely attached um, children are emotionally sensitive and responsive to their baby's cues. So when baby's crying, like there's like, uh, response, um, a warm response and connection there, um, which um, is generally, they think, how that secure attachment is built. For anxious, ambivalent attachment, which I think is also preoccupied attachment, it's basically the child goes between being really clingy to being really resistant to their caregiver. When they're left with a stranger, they become very like unconsolable, like just very upset until the mother returns. And then mother returns and they may become really angry or resist mother's attempts. 
And then sometimes it could look like indifference um, or like fluctuate between indifference and enthusiasm. So then it produces kind of like, um, kind of like this push and pull that the child is exhibiting as well. The third is uh, the anxious avoidant attachment. An avoidant baby usually interacts very little with the mother in the first place when they're playing. And then um, mother leaves the room they show little distress, even with the stranger. Mother comes back and they avoid or ignore the mother upon return to. It's kind of consistently kind of like avoidant or low emotion. And then the mother of those children tend to be either very impatient and unresponsive or at the other extreme, they provide their children with too much stimulation. So it just becomes so overwhelming that they feel like they have to kind of like shut off and shut their emotions down, be avoidant a little bit. And then the last is the disorganized or disoriented or fearful avoidant, I believe, attachment style. And these children exhibit fear of their caregivers. Um, sometimes they might look a little like dazed or confused and have some other like kind of disorganized behaviors. Like they might initially greet the mother when the mother returns, but then like turn their back and then ignore her. And most of the children in that category, they say, like, based on their research, have been mistreated by their caregivers in some capacity and uh, behave in that manner. So there's some, like, the fearfulness of the caregivers and some kind of, like, inconsistent behavior. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thanks for that summary, Yuris. So we want to have this conversation about childhood wounds, which is a common topic in you know, broader discussions about the Enneagram. And in order to kind of bring some of that attachment theory stuff into conversation with this issue of childhood wounds, it would be helpful if we could maybe describe a little bit about what the childhood wounds are, like uh, specifically, what are we talking about in relation to the various types, and then be able to then integrate some of this. Well, John, when you talk about childhood wounds, especially when it comes to the Enneagram in that conversation, it's felt needs that a, that a child has that don't get met. Um, they can be as extreme as trauma, where the child went through some traumatic experience and was completely shut down from their needs, or they can be the other polar extreme, can be a parent just doesn't connect with their kid in a way that the kid is wired. And so they can be needs uh, of understanding, they can be existential needs that the child thinks they need, but something happens and a wound develops and the child starts building persona around that to get those needs met. So when you talk about childhood wounds in Enneagram, it comes to the fact that when you look at your Enneagram number, a lot of the ways we tell what our Enneagram number is, is, is we look at those wounds and we feel them deeper than, than everybody else around us. We go, oh, wow, that describes us to a T or that describes me to a T. And uh, in the Enneagram for specifically talks about that as a pathway to walk and recognize those uh, wounds that we've experienced and then also walk through them in a real healthy way. Yeah, thanks for that summary, Josh. Can we say a little bit more about how this applies to the nine types more specifically? Yeah, so this is Grace. I just wanted to briefly go over some of how like the different types experience the childhood wounds or the way that they've experienced um, their caregiver. Um, so type ones, they often feel more disconnected from their caregiver. They feel like there's not too much order in their household. So they try to create 
um, that sense of order. Um, they also make themselves their own um, like internal critic so that no one else can criticize them. Um, so they become more like self-judgmental. And then uh, for type two, um, they're more ambivalent towards caregivers. They often want to sacrifice their own needs to meet the needs of the caregiver. So self-sacrifice is what is the main theme of their, their wounds. Uh, for type three, they felt connected to the caregiver um, and tried to meet the caregiver's needs, but in a way where uh, they felt like they needed to achieve to be able to please the caregiver. So they were loved not for who they were, but for what they did and achieved. Uh, so there's a rejection of the core self. For the type four, they felt disconnected from the caregivers. They didn't feel like they were known or seen. Um, they felt like just very unique um, in and of themselves. So they had a rejection of their identity. For type five, um, they felt more ambivalent towards their caregivers. They felt like outsiders distanced themselves from relationships and emotions to master um, like an expertise. So, you know, sometimes they would just go into the room and try to study like something and really just master it to the detriment of not really having that cl those close relationships. So there's that rejection of intimacy. For type six, I'm a type six, so I can relate to this. They felt connected to the caregiver, but the connection wasn't always positive. So there was um, an overdependence on the caregiver figure. And so there was less of a trust of their own internal voice. Um, so there's that rejection of trust, which, um, yeah, I understand a lot of times it's hard for me to make decisions. I ask like a whole bunch of people around me um, before I actually make a decision because I need like those you know, figures of authority or figure or people who have like expert opinions um, before I can actually move forward. So I totally understand that. And so for type sevens, I think they felt more disconnected from the caregivers. So because of that disconnection, they felt on uh, or they focused on things like transitional objects, like activities or toys or um, just things to do to fill that void um, because of that absence of nurturing. And then type eight, um, there was also an ambivalence towards caregivers. Um, they just grew up too fast. They felt like they needed to uh, just take that authority. Um, so there was that rejection of their childhood. And then type nine, they felt connected to the caregivers, but they felt that the caregivers' emotions more than their own they learn to numb their like own emotions and their own desires, um, living in denial of like their own pain. Um, so there was a rejection of their own voice. So I think that is just a brief overview of how some of the type or how the nine types experience those childhood wounds. Hey, Grace, that's a really good point. I think one, we just need to say one more time that this is an inev inevitable part of life. The wounds that we experience as children can be uh, given to us by a fabulous parent, or they can be, like I said before, trauma. But everybody, because of the way they're wired, and because we don't know each other in such an intimate level where we can sense and see what's going on all the time in each other's hearts, um, we're going to get wounded. And we're going to get wounded as a child, things that uh, just can contribute to relationships between parents. So I think that's important to notice. Uh, I also think one of the important things to note, too, is each one of those types, and you alluded to this, Grace, in a real cool way, has a lie attached to them. So, for instance, uh, type one says, I'm not good enough, right? 
So they feel highly criticized. They feel like I'm not good enough. And so in order to be good, I have to organize the world around me. And that's what makes uh, order out of chaos. Type, types two see, feel like they don't feel worthy to be loved. Um, and so they have to prove themselves as worthy to be loved. So they run and, and serve and do all these different things all the way up to a, a type seven where that's me. And uh, I think each one has a lie, but type seven for me is children that were deprived of kind of the nurturing of their heart or there's instances where my parents didn't quite get me and things like that. And I kind of believe the lie that I'm not worth the time to be understood because um, I was different. And so there's aspects of those lies that just get integrated. And those are those things that are really important, not just to recognize the wound, but the lie that um, basically the world and Satan is trying to tell you to mess with you and, uh, and start to work through that and start to integrate truth into that and who God created you to be. Hearing all this about the childhood wounds and, and, and how this plays out in, in the Enneagram, I, I'm curious to know, has anybody done the work to apply some of this stuff with attachment theory and to talk about the Enneagram and attachment theory in particular? Yeah, John. So there's actually an article um, that Arthur and Alan, they uh, wrote in 2010, uh, talking about the integration between the Enneagram and attachment theory. And so um, what they did is they found like the two elements of attachment, which is avoidance um, and anxiety. Um, and they compared how um, the different types responded to being either um, avoidant or um, more anxious. So the avoidance, the people who had higher avoidance, um, they're the ones who have um, kind of a moving away from, and the people who had lower avoidance, they're the types that are uh, moving towards. So what they found is that um, types nine wing one to type four, so that's uh, nine wing one, two, three, and four, they have lower avoidance than types five to nine wing eight, um, who have, and then types Two, four, six, eight, nine wing eight have higher anxiety than types one, three, five, seven, nine wing one. So those are like evens versus odds who have higher anxiety. Um, so they actually were able to find um, in the results that um, these Enneagram types kind of, they do have a relationship between um, their attachment types. And um, I, actually, I also love this quote that um, they actually wrote in their research article, um, it said, if, as Ainsworth wrote over 50 years ago, the attachment relationship is a human vehicle for the expression of love, then within the integrated typology presented here, the nine Enneagram types are nine expressions of that love. So that's kind of like a summary of how the Enneagram types integrate with the attachment theory. It almost reminds me of that, of the aspect of like love language things, right? That I'm sure Eurace, you've seen this in counseling. I'd love to hear about that. How you step into each person's each person's life, start to figure out what their attachment looks like, and then create that safe space for them, so they can experience maybe love for the first time in a way that they never have before. I think like something you said, Josh, about how each type has like a very strong belief held in in like a statement, and they believe that's the only way that they can be loved or be cared for is um is if they do something otherwise like they're not worthy or they can't be loved 
So in some sense, people being able to make that connection, no matter how false in their minds, helps them to survive that relationship with their primary caregiver, helps them to somehow experience some kind of love. And so all of these Enneagram types, there is brokenness in the ways that they experience that. And it's because they're human relationships and a broken person with a broken person is going to result in kind of like a broken pattern of relationship as well. But yeah, I think that that provides a lot of helpful information in the context of therapy because like how how eager they are to engage or how disengaged they are um, in context of these like early, really formative relationships helps to kind of pave the way for how uh, different interventions should be structured and how how even the therapist like sets boundaries with the patient or like provides that kind of like warmth that helps them feel seen that maybe they they feel like they need to perform a certain way in order to obtain. Um, it's just kind of like there. I remember in Rosemead, like one of the first types of therapy we learned is person-centered therapy or Rogerian therapy. And the three core conditions of that therapy are like genuineness, like being really genuine in your reactions to them. So that doesn't mean like always agreeing with them. If your patient is saying something that's like very surprising or startling, you you express the genuine concern or expression to, to them, but also the unconditional positive regard is huge, accepting and caring for them regardless of what they say, regardless of how like shocking or distorted their thinking pattern may be. It's like accepting them for who they are in the condition that they're in. And then um, being able to provide like accurate empathic uh, reflections to them. So being able to meet them in the emotion that they're at, um, even if it's not showing on the surface. And in a lot of ways, it feels like that those, those three things are at least in when I when I read the Bible and I have an understanding of who God is, I feel like He's the perfect therapist because He provides those three things so perfectly: um, the acceptance, the genuineness, and the warmth, the caring, and then being able to just know us at the deepest heart level. Uh, yeah, your race. I think that's really cool. When we learn, when we've been trained in spiritual formation, um, one of the things that I remember from my spiritual formation training was just pretty awesome. Was the understanding that we're wired to connect. Um, we're not only wired to connect to each other, but there's this uh, existential hole inside of our soul where we're wired to connect to God. Uh, we're created as beings that are supposed to connect with our creator and be loved in a, in a way that uh, is unconditional, is grace, all those kind of different things. And so I think it's really unique. One, I, we have so many blind spots so many times. And I think when I've been in therapy and I've experienced uh, my counselor tell me things that are and accept me for who I am, despite my emotion or despite something that's going uh, on, or I'm just trying to figure out, I know it's a safe place where I can say things. And it's not, uh, it's not just like a yes man therapy. It's not like, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. No, keep going. You know, that kind of thing. It's, it's response. It's loving that person and being there for them. And I think that's what we do as spiritual formation kind of coaches too. Um, and I would just take that step that goes 
a little bit farther than that and start walking them through what a discipline is and using tools like the Enneagram that will help be revelatory of those different things and give, give conversation um, and kind of like a glossary for terminology and help them walk into uh, a place that's right there with God and invite the Holy Spirit into that journey. Totally agree like with what you said, Josh, and kind of going along with what Eurice was saying, how God is like the perfect therapist. He's also the perfect parent, you know. He is our Abba, our Father, and He knows us so well and so deeply, even better than we know ourselves. And He is unconditionally loving to us, and He can meet all our needs, you know. So even though maybe we've we experienced some wounds or some hurt from our uh, childhood, God can come in and actually heal those wounds. Even as Josh was saying, um, practicing those spiritual disciplines, God can use those as a vehicle to be able to bring some of that healing as we meditate on the truth of who he is and how he loves us so deeply. That can really bring transformation um, to our souls in our spiritual lives and also in our relationships with others. So in light of this discussion, I'm really curious to know how the path forward with the Enneagram as it relates to childhood wounds might sync up with some therapies related to attachment theory. And so I think maybe first, if we could hear a little bit about how this works with the Enneagram, uh, we might be able to then hear a little bit about that and then transition to talk a bit about how, how therapy with attachment theory might work and kind of see some parallels or correlations there. Yeah, John, I think, I think one of the reasons I love the Enneagram as a tool, it's a spiritual formation tool, specifically because it has a map. Uh, unlike a, we talked about in, in past podcasts, unlike personality tests or things like that, there's actually a map where you start looking at your number and there's things of how to integrate your life in a better way. And then there's recognition of things that are uh, kind of disorganized in your life. And those point to the wounds and all that stuff. So the beautiful thing about the Enneagram is, is once you start going into it, it's revelatory of who you are and, and kind of reveals all that kind of different stuff. It can show you these blind spots that you hadn't ever seen before or kind of got an inkling or all these kind of different stuff. And it can point you back to your childhood wound. And it can also look at behaviors and say, when you're behaving like this, here's what it may be born of. So it kind of sets a context for you to be able to work on your own soul or to have somebody speak into uh, matters of your heart in a way that I just found really helpful. And so I'd be really interested in, in how things like cognitive therapy or attachment theory really step into similar things like that. So primarily the type of therapy I focus on is called like third wave behavioral therapy. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy. Well, a lot of it is behavior-based. And um, even though I do a lot of interventions focused on behavior, one of the most meaningful ways that uh, attachment kind of weaves itself in into my conceptualization and my interventions with patients is some are highly motivated, like with homework and stuff like that. They'll bring homework back and be like, look what I did. Um, I'm making so much progress and feel so like proud of the the progress that they're making and we can celebrate that together and things like that. Others feel like, hey, I've been to like four appointments with you and I'm still the same as I was the first time. Like, 
what are you not doing that is not healing me right now? Um, and those people feel like just overwhelmed by when we when we have to kind of stop the behavior part and just kind of like take a step back and talk about like what's getting in the way, like what what's taking away from the motivation to be working on this thing that's really important to you. It just feels like overwhelming. Like I can't do that on my own. That's why I'm here to see you. I thought you were supposed to do this for me. Just kind of like those barriers that get in the way of even the behavioral stuff that we do sheds a lot of light on like their perceived like self-sufficiency or their expectation of like how much they expect others to help them or like rescue them in different situations and versus others who feel like this is this is my responsibility and this person may help give suggestions but this is all on me. I I can't burden my therapist with too much. This is this is my stuff. And then of course there are those people as well who feel like it's a partnership like hey this is what I've done. This is what we're working on and there's like a we us type um feel and so definitely like I I think attachment can't be avoided no matter what what uh like modality um you're using and in thinking of enneagrams I feel like a new up and coming type of therapy is interpersonal psychotherapy. And I, I am not formally trained on interpersonal psychotherapy, but it's, it treats lots of different conditions like anxiety, um, depression, bipolar, social phobia, PTSD, different things. But basically, it's talking about how, how some of those early attachment issues and like how you navigated different life transitions from even the earliest of ages and like different relational conflicts, how all of those are interconnected with some of the symptoms that patients come in with. I don't want to feel depressed anymore. I don't want to feel anxious anymore. It's talking about, well, let's talk about these early interpersonal relationships that have contributed contributed to where we are today and how can we address some of those patterns that we're noticing and really make meaning out of um, some of those things that may just try to be avoided altogether or be glossed over like that was a long time ago it's not something that is relevant to today um, oftentimes they are much more relevant than people think and so being able to shed some light on some of those things and make meaning out of them can be really healing What's the difference between somebody that was like trained at Rosemead with the integration of spiritual formation and stuff that, that Biola has and things like that? What's the difference between that and somebody that's just trained in cognitive behavioral psychology or like how do you bring God into the picture? Well, I feel like a lot of the conversations I had in Rosemead were talking about how psychology is so like inherently secular or it believes it itself to be secular and so how to bridge that gap with how to integrate that with our christian understanding and christian belief is like an ongoing struggle but i feel like the longer i was in rosemead the more messy i feel like that connection was of like psychology and theology and also like the more it just made sense Maybe it's because like I was raised in such a like 
a Christian drilled home where like I can find Christ in anything. <laughs> but um, I just feel like even, especially with things like attachment, I see God so clearly, like how how he can work, how he does work and how our broken or imperfect styles of attachment impact even the way that we relate to God. And the more that we're aware of that, the more that it even heals our relationship with God. Because without that awareness, it almost feels like like people with, I guess, like ambivalent styles or um, the avoidance styles, they could totally just feel like, well, what's the point of reading scripture? Or what's the point of praying to a God who won't answer back to a God who is too big and too busy to be worrying about me? I feel like it, it heals a lot of those like broken beliefs and perceptions. I think just at the like basic level, like just as what Eurice was saying, understanding our childhood experiences and our upbringing, just having that awareness is really important in understanding how to move forward and how to bring God into healing those childhood experiences and how God can meet us in our, in our brokenness and he can uh, show us that he is the perfect father and that he, yeah, as I said uh, earlier, he fully knows and loves us. I wonder if we might be able to sort of reflect on possible correlations between different attachment types and the the wounds themselves like for example when we heard about the four types of attachment i wondered if like for example like the ambivalent one in particular might resonate with like certain types i i'm curious and i'm wondering if maybe if we're familiar with any kind of work that's been done in this area, or if maybe we have some thoughts ourselves, uh, and even if there are curiosities, that's all right, we can throw out curiosities. But if there are some, you know, things that we are interested in sort of chatting about related to this, I'm very curious. What there is, is a chart in that article that I had mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, so they had like the dismissing avoidant, which is like, I'm comfortable without close relation, emotional relationships. It's very important for me to feel independent and self-sufficient, and I prefer not to depend on others or have others depend on me. That kind of correlates with like the type five mm. um, who does not like intimate relationships, just wanting to kind of do their own thing and be really independent. I think we had joked in like a previous conversation that no one really knows type fives because they're kind of just doing their own thing. So it's kind of hard to track them down. The new Sherlock Holmes of Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, yeah. Where he goes into his mental palace and just mm. the entire world is his own right there. And everybody's like, what are you doing? <laughs> what, if, what if we looked at our own Enneagram numbers and looked at this chart? Like why number sevens are low anxiety? It's when number seven doesn't want to deal with mm. suffering. So mm-hmm. it's a weird mask of like, it's low anxiety because I'm not dealing with it. And, and somebody like a six would be constantly checking. Like, their anxiety would be high because they're like, is everything okay? Is everything okay? Is everything okay? Six, I think would be, it's like the fearful avoidance. So it's like high anxiety and high avoidance. So I have like the worst of both pretty much <laughs> um, as a six. Um, I have the high anxiety trying to like, you know, please others, um, trying to make sure I'm liked and like 
you know, trying to follow other people. But at the same time, I'm also very like hesitant in getting close to others. I'm very like distrustful and skeptic about people's motives. Um, so relationships are really complicated and messy for me because it's like, I really want to like be with others, but at the same time, I'm really scared of others. So um, yeah, it's complicated. There's also um, on this chart, it says uh, the attachment style for uh, type twos, which I think Eurice is a type two, is preoccupied. So on this chart, what it says is I want to be completely emotionally intimate with others, but I often find that others are reluctant to get as close as I would like. And then um, on the Enneagram side, it says twos move toward people as if seeking to answer to the inner question, will I be liked? They have a marked need for affection and approval. They want to be loved, to be protected, and to feel important in other people's lives. Do you think you resonate with that, Yuris? Oh, yeah, for sure. And especially, I feel like one of the parts about that Enneagram to the helper that said, like, I only feel as worthy as how helpful I can be to others probably has a big had a big influence on me becoming a therapist at all I find a lot of like when I'm at my healthiest I guess I find my meaning in being able to be helpful to others and then when I'm at my unhealthiest like yeah I could totally see being a preoccupied attached person yeah yeah and then for sevens it looks like they have lower anxiety and high avoidance. I don't know for John and Josh, if you resonate with, with those descriptions, how do you feel that describes yourself? So yeah, I think that's a really interesting, Grace, because uh, John and I are both sevens, but we have different wings. And so we'll even approach things in a different way. So I'm really excited to hear what John has to say about this. I know as a seven, it's easy to avoid things, um, unpleasantness, avoid pain and suffering and just really focus on future opportunities, uh, future pleasant opportunities, things that are going to either cause joy in my own life or use me to cause joy in other people's lives. And um, I think as a seven wing eight, my focus gets put on where can I be most effective? Like where can I spread joy most effectively and just and, and be looking for those opportunities? And then my focus gets really narrow, um, which might be different from John's. In the way he approaches it with a with a wing six. Yeah, I would say be, because I have a wing six, I, I don't know that I would say that I'm low anxiety. I, I feel like, yeah, highly avoidant in that sense of like running away from pain and running towards that which brings joy and happiness and excitement, right? I mean, it's like the next the next flight that I can go on, which of course in COVID I had to cancel seven trips. So that's like really upsetting. Right. But it's like, yeah, where's the next place I can travel to and then, you know, all the, all the new things that I can try and yeah, all of those sorts of things. But because I have a, a, a six wing, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm probably more anxious than a seven wing eight would be, I'm guessing. But yeah. So like in my family, the joke is that I'm definitely the, the most cautious, anxious one. And in fact, uh, a number of years ago, my dad wrote this poem for my mom and it's like framed in their room. And it's, you know, this really kind of cute thing about like how they met or whatever. And when my dad kind of describes us three kids, 
He doesn't say like our names. He just refers to us by characteristics. And the way he like refers to me, in fact, he doesn't actually say like, this is about, you know, our oldest and this is about our second. I mean, it's just the way he describes me is he he refers to a highly anxious one. So I am characterized by my dad as a very anxious person. And everybody knows like, oh yeah, that's Johnny, you know, that kind of thing. So I think Probably my six wing is like flapping real hard, if that, if that makes sense. That's, that's really interesting, John, because um, like I would be, my parents would always describe me as the bullheaded one. Like, you know, like I'm just going to go and I'm going to do, I'm just going to like, I will, I will put the narrowing vision stuff on and I'll, and I'll avoid unpleasantness or other things like that. If, if it starts to come at me, I just kind of put, I go, no, 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 don't, don't care, you know, get in the bulldozer. We'll run that over just so we can have some, and it'll be fun doing it. And so the anxious and anxiety, I, I can swing to the six wing and that happens, but I think seven with an eight wing, it's just really, it's really interesting because the way I'll avoid things would be because I don't want to deal with them and it can kind of be apathy or something like that because of pain or fe- any kind of feedback and stuff like that. That's my, that would be my tendency. Um, because it's it's uh, squashing like my my the good times that I'm trying to have. Or uh, also one of the things too is I'll get grumpy with other people for not being like me. Like why can't you just avoid and just not think about this? Like why can't you just have a good time? And uh, so my me and my wife are really different. She's a two wing one, and she she wants to help and organize, and I want to just be like let's just invite everybody over to the house and have a good time. And who cares if it's dirty? And she's like, if it's dirty, I can't, I can't serve them. Well, I can't be hospitable. I can't create an environment of love and care for them. Like, ah, they'll be loved and cared for no matter what. I don't, you know. And so that was a lot of like, I've been married 20 years now, but that's a lot of conflict at the very beginning and it still creeps its head. Uh, it still pops up. And so it's just really funny how I just think it's really interesting how the wings that might be something future discussion of even how the wings um, and maybe even the subtypes like influence what kind of how how it seems like the same kind of attachment, but how it how it rears its non great looking head because we don't want to say ugly because I don't want to think about that stuff right so. Yeah, this is really interesting. I definitely, I definitely think connecting attachment theory with some of these childhood wounds and the, and the way our personalities have have been formed and shaped is is a really interesting conversation. It's not one that I am very very familiar with. I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful, Grace, that you brought in this article to shed some light on that, and grateful to Eurice for for your expertise and being able to talk to us about your therapy and 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 how how all of that works. And I just think this has been a really fascinating conversation and i appreciate all of you guys being a part of it yeah john this has been a blast just even uh thinking through this stuff yeah it's been fun thanks so much john yeah for me as well i think usually being in a in a more secular setting being able to have these conversations tying in um the faith as well as um you know like this new interest of enneagram is definitely fun
If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.